Hello and welcome to the Biology of Superheroes podcast. I'm your host, Shane Campbell Staten. We're coming at you in this episode to chat about the biology behind Ant-Man, the master of myrmecology. That's the study of ants. We talk all about the evolution and incredible adaptations of this diverse group of insects. I sit down with Dr. Corey Moreau of Cornell University to get the lowdown on ant communication, ant weaponry, flight, and their incredible ability to build structures like bridges and rafts. I'm joined in the lab, as always, by my dude, Arian Darby. Hey, what's up, you guys? This is Arian, and I just wanted to deliver a quick disclosure. I am currently an employee of Warner Brothers Entertainment, and any feedback and opinions that I have are solely my own and are not a reflection of the company. So take a breath, chill out, and get those ants out your pants. That was a lot scarier a second ago. Because the Biology of Superheroes podcast starts now. Got my main man Arian in the lab. Hey, hey. As always. Uh, today we are going to jump in, talk about Ant Man. We're going to do some Ant Man today. Uh, so we're going to talk about Scott Lang. Uh, we're going to talk about Hope Van Dyne. Hank Pym. We're going to kick it old school, talk a little Hank Pym, a little Janet Van Dyne, we're gonna, all the stuff. Um, so obviously, there's a lot that we could potentially unpack with this character. Uh, Ant Man, I mean, dude's got. A bunch of different abilities. I mean, the biggest of which, literally, the size manipulation. You see what I did there? Uh-huh. Um, you know, we could, t- we could talk about size manipulation. We could talk about the quantum realm. But for this, our, like, first exploration in Ant-Man, I think we're just going to talk about the biology of ants. Right? I'm a biologist. It's the Biology of Superheroes podcast. We're going to talk about some ants today. So when we're talking about ants, you know, you're talking about a pretty versatile weapon, I think. When we see Ant-Man utilize this part of his toolkit, he uses ants for all sorts of purposes, for espionage, for flight, um, for different attack purposes, for constructing various things, etc. And for me, like looking at this character, the first thing that comes to my mind is that it requires a lot of knowledge about the biology of ants in order to manipulate them and coordinate them in the way that we see it play out in the comic books and uh, and in the movies. So for this episode, we're going to focus on this this big question, what makes ants so formidable? So Arian, first of all, tell me a little bit about Ant-Man. Like, what is the history of this character? Sure. So Ant-Man was introduced in 1962, and the original Ant-Man was Hank Pym. And after a tragic death involving his first wife, he decided to be a superhero. He invented these particles called the Pym particles, which actually allowed him to do some of that size manipulation you were talking about and Mm -hmm. shrink himself down. So he decided to become a hero and kind of got involved into the entire superhero world that way. But... As the story of Ant-Man progressed, it eventually brought on characters like the Wasp. You were introduced to a new Ant-Man in the form of Scott Lang, who actually was a thief originally, but in an effort to save his daughter Cassie, decided to steal the Ant-Man suit and technology for himself to save her life. And so that's how he got brought into the fold as well. And so... You know, outside of the ability to manipulate the pim particles and uh, increase and shrink size, Ant-Man also has the ability to preserve his strength and power and speed, even at a miniature size. And I'm not sure if we're violating any sort of Newtonian laws here yeah. with conservation of whatever it is. <laughs> but, you know, a couple of eyebrows raise up when, when that... Uh, Uh, comes to pass as his uh, ability but it's certainly cool to kind of 
have the thought experiment of seeing it play out in films and in the comic books. Yeah. But so I will say we're not going to dive into it too deep in this episode. Obviously, we're going to have to come back to this pretty quickly, though, mm-hmm. um, in the future. Um, but the the idea of like shrinking down to a very small size and maintaining strength might not be as out of this world as you might think. And that has to do with like some specific aspects of physics and all this sort of like biomechanics that we're not going to go into. But I will say it would look very different on a screen than what we actually saw. To be continued. (laughs) However, uh, what I think is most pertinent to our conversation here today is the helmet that Ant-Man wears, because that is what enables him to communicate with the ants that are essentially part of his tribe, right? I mean, yeah. if you look at the relationship that Scott Lang has with the ants, even in the films, he names them, he cares after them, and ultimately understands them to uh, such a really innate degree of like what their abilities are and, and how to best leverage them in any scenario. And that's where I would argue his true power lies. It's in the relationship that he's formed with these ants, as well as how he's able to act as sort of this conductor of of the symphony of ants and their abilities to accomplish what he needs as a hero. Absolutely. And I think, you know, so from the biology perspective, obviously, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to unpack in order to get at what we see with this character. And we got to talk about ant communication. Um, We're going to have to talk about, you know, all of these different tools that we see these different ants bring. Obviously, he uses different types of ants for different purposes. We're going to dive into that a little bit. So in order to help us out, I reached out to uh, one of my favorite people in the entire world, Dr. Corey Moreau at Cornell University. Uh, She is an ant biologist and a professor. All of her research um, focuses specifically on different aspects of ant evolution and adaptation. So I sat down with Corey and I asked her, Uh, Just a few questions about, first, her general fascination with ants. Of all the things she could study, why ants? So let's hear what she had to say. Hi, I'm Dr. Corey Moreau, and I'm the Martha N. and John C. Moser Professor of Arthropod Biosystematics and Biodiversity at Cornell University. And I'm also the director of the Cornell University Insect Collection and head curator. Oh, man. You you are like, you're essentially the queen of all things insects. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Sometimes it feels that way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you've spent most of your career working with ants. Why ants specifically? That's a great question. I think the reason I'm so attracted to them is that there's almost any biological question you can ask, you can actually use ants to address the questions. And in some ways, they're even better systems than other kinds of organisms. So, you know, people often ask me, why would I focus so narrowly just on ants? And I have to remind people that there are more species of ants than all the birds and mammals added together. And even though they're very small and sometimes people don't see all the obvious variation, there is, there are so many different shapes and sizes and colors and, and um, anatomical characters on, t- on these species. In addition, they live on every continent on the globe except Antarctica. They have um, variation in sort of where they live. They have variation in who they interact with. Um, they're very important ecologically to almost every single, you know, biosphere on the planet. I mean, I think they're just a really remarkable group of animals. So what do you think has been the key to the success of ants, right? I mean, if you're talking about like species diversity and the ability to live in a bunch of different places, I mean, it seems like they are like, I mean, almost as good as we are in colonizing different places. What has made them so successful? Um, I think a few different things, one of which is that because they are eusocial, meaning that they form these communities, right, of interacting individuals, Um, that carry out different um, tasks within a colony, it's also that they can modify their environment, right? So they build these giant, essentially high-rises, but below ground, right, with these intricate tunnels. So essentially, they're not stuck just using what nature is made available to live in. They can actually even almost build what they need themselves, which essentially opens up the opportunity to live in lots of different habitats and in lots of different spaces from the very top of the canopy all the way down to the leaf litter and even meters below the soil. Wow. 
So, I mean, it seems like a lot of stuff that makes them successful is what has actually made us successful. <laughs> That's right. I think there is a lot of similarities between sort of social societies and able to be ecologically and evolutionarily sort of dominant. So could you give us a little bit of background on like thinking about like the broad scope of ant evolution, like how old are ants? Like what, what has, what has generated this, this diversity of ants that we see? Yeah, that's a great question. So the oldest ant fossils are probably around about 100 million years old. And interestingly, those fossils are already found in modern lineages. Um, so they're relatives of species we still have alive today. And so interestingly, when we use some analytical tools, we can actually date the ants. And they're probably about maybe 150 million years old. So that's quite a lot of time, but it still doesn't account for why we see so much diversity. And some of the hypotheses out there is that um, ants were sort of, you know, abundant, but not super abundant, not very species rich, but distributed pretty widely across the globe. But they weren't sort of, you know, able to maximize their um, uh, living environment until the flowering plants came along. So some of the work that I did showed that when the flowering plants sort of began to expand across the globe, ants took advantage of this new resource, both for its food resources, but also for all of the new niches that it provided for them to forage on and also live in. And so ants diversified around 100 million years into you know, a lot of the diversity we see today. So obviously ants are crazy diverse. They live all over the place, they do damn near everything it seems like uh and they're one of the most successful groups of animals on the planet you know and, and also one of the most numerous right Just oh my god sheer quantity yeah absolutely there are a crazy number of species yeah i was doing some quick google research and people were saying something along the lines of 10,000 trillion or <laughs> 1 million billion and so <laughs> you know the the, the number is astronomical uh so uh by ten thousand billion uh, individuals but not species not species not species um i i don't even know what ten thousand billion looks like as a number um but you're talking about a very large swath of the animal tree of life That's just ants insane just Absolutely. ants just ants and all of them seem to end up in my house for some reason. Well, maybe if you cleaned up some of the food that you was eating, they wouldn't be in there, Arian. <laughs> <laughs> so to start off this exploration, um, let's start with flight. Yeah, so this is something that we see with Ant-Man quite often. Yeah, I think a lot of the um, a lot of the covers of Ant-Man comics that I've seen are like him on with a saddle uh, on the back of an ant that's flying. So, Arian, give us a little bit of background, like when it comes to Ant-Man and flying around, like what, like how is he using these these flying ants? Sure. Well, Ant-Man has always, in a sense, given himself the short end of the stick when it comes to his costume and uniform because he hasn't equipped himself with the ability to fly. And so when it comes to transportation, our hero, Scott Lang, for instance, in the films is always looking for some support in that area. So he reaches out to, to Anthony, I think is what he names his uh, best buddy and flying companion in uh, the Marvel films. And that's how he gets in and out of missions and in and out of dangerous scenarios by calling him into battle with him. Yeah. And it's, it, I feel like it's kind of weird that the Ant-Man suit doesn't have wings, given the fact that the Wasp suit does have wings. And it's obviously superior, I feel like, in a lot of ways. A thousand percent. <laughs> because it's like, she does everything that he does, plus she can fly. Yeah, that's totally true. She's far superior and better equipped for these missions than he is. And, and that's, like, totally fine. Uh, and the other thing that comes up for me, too, is, like, one, I didn't even realize ants could fly. So, one, we need to get into that because I, I just didn't even know that was a thing cleanliness of apartments aside i've never seen them like buzzing around my studio loft so uh, okay. if, if i knew they could fly your boy's picking up for sure yeah but so like what's the deal with that like that is a great question so obviously when we think about ants not all ants can fly i think when most of us think about ants we probably don't think about an ant 
with wings. So, you know, I asked Corey, well, what is it with ant flight? So with Antony, we see, so Antony is a carpenter ant. Right. And I think when Hank Pym is explaining to Scott Lang sort of this diversity of species that he's using, he refers to carpenter ants specifically as the flying ants. Ex- exactly. Right. right. Like these are the, are the flyers. Caponotus pensylvanicus. Alternatively known as a carpenter ant, ideal for grounding air transport. Wait a minute, I know this guy. I'm gonna call him Anthony. But do all carpenter ants fly? Do any other ants fly? Do other species fly? Is it just particular kinds or casts of ants that can fly? Right. So let's hear what Corey has to say about this. Hmm. Um, almost all species of ants do have winged males and winged uh, queens. But the, after reproduction, the queen actually will fly around until she finds a suitable place to start a new nest. And she'll reach back with her legs and step on her wings and sort of pull them off. And they sort of just snap off quite easily. And then she has these little things that are called wing scars on her for the rest of her life. And she'll never fly again. So the window for when most species of ants can fly is probably about one week per year. So it wouldn't necessarily be a reliable mode of transportation. Oh, interesting. Wait, so why, why, why does she pull her wings off? Well, for most species of ants, they live in really tight chambers, and so they would sort of get in the way, and there's no sort of functional reason for them. And you have to also remember that ants and all insects, right, have an exoskeleton. So their sort of bones or skeleton is on the outside. And so all of those parts don't have, she doesn't have any ability to, like, it doesn't hurt when she takes the wings off. It's more like clipping your fingernails. Oh, okay. So given what Corey says, this particular aspect of the comic books and movies seems just a little bit off, right? So if Antony is a male ant, that basically means he's only flying for like a week out of the year. Right. Which is weird. In the summer when crime is at its highest. Yeah. Statistically speaking. So you would think that maybe that wouldn't be the most reliable form of transportation when you're trying to fight crime year round although maybe he's just active one week out of the year sounds like a good deal to me (laughs) (laughs) i want that schedule given the sort of inherent biology of carpenter ants this isn't really feasible for a consistent mode of transportation but the other thing i've been thinking a lot about is that hank pym is a pretty talented scientist and he kind of wears this dual role as both a physicist and a biologist. And in order to get these, uh, in order to get the ants to do all the stuff that we see, I mean, he has to be pretty intimately familiar with the mechanisms of ant biology. So maybe there is a little bit of science at play behind the scenes here that we're actually not seeing. Uh, So for instance, you know, we bring this up, I think we brought this up several times at this point in the series, um, but CRISPR, right? I mean, CRISPR mm-hmm. is this all-purpose, um, you know, editing platform that's becoming more and more precise. It's being used on more and more different types of species. So maybe it's possible that Hank Pym is using gene editing to actually turn specific genes on and off when it comes to uh, forcing potentially ants to develop wings or um, artificially producing you know, different casts like queens that can fly so that he constantly has, you know, these individuals at the disposal of Ant-Man, like when he goes off and does the thing, regardless of the time of year. Uh, So there was actually a paper uh, that was published in Science back in 2002 by uh, a group at Duke University that looked for the genes that were involved in wing development, specifically in ants. And they found that it's expression of only about six genes that are responsible for wing development uh, in ants. And that casts that don't have those wings, so different wingless forms of ants, actually show disrupted gene expression in these six genes, which is why they don't grow their wings. So by artificially turning those genes on using a technique like CRISPR, you could potentially force wing growth. The other thing with ants is that there's also the possibility that you could 
produce these different types of ants, not through genetic manipulation, but by manipulating their environment instead. So the development of ants, right? I mean, one of the big things about ants is that they come in these different casts, right? You have uh, queen ants, which are sort of the reproductive factories. You have your soldier ants, which are you know, pretty, they have like these big heads, big mandibles, and then you have your worker ants that do all the business of a colony. So it turns out that a lot of the differences that we see between these different castes isn't due to genetics, but is due to the environment that they develop in as young. So the formation of castes is essentially governed by more or less three different switch points. So the first of those switch points is genetic, right? And that is based on whether the egg is either fertilized or not. So if the egg is fertilized, it becomes female. If it's not fertilized, it becomes male, which is this, what we call haplodiploidy mechanism of, of reproduction. And then amongst those females, if the larvae are given a certain temperature and photo period at a critical point in development, they morph into queens, but if not, then they are sterile and they become either workers or they become soldier ants. And what determines them becoming soldiers or workers is yet a third switch. Depending on the type of diet that they're given when they're young, they either end up becoming these big soldiers or they end up becoming workers. So even without genetic manipulation, you could potentially get flying males at different times a year um, in a laboratory setting. Or if you manipulated the temperature and photo period at a given time in the development of the ants, you could artificially produce more queens than would usually be produced in, in a given colony and get more winged individuals that way. So, you know, from a scientific standpoint, right, there's a lot of underpinning biology that could potentially be manipulated in order to get what we see, you know, beyond just one week out of the year. Yeah, I mean, I think that all sounds very plausible, especially if we're taking this in the context of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and looking at Hank Pym as someone that has been involved in the trajectory of what Ant-Man has become over the course of decades. He's had to have put some thought into this as a biophysicist to uh, consider how to replenish his army, more or less, yeah. when it comes to going into battle and, and on these missions. And, you know, one of the things that strikes me, especially about the films and the way Ant-Man is portrayed, especially as Scott Lang playing the lead, uh, it's, it's a heist film. And there's mm -hmm. so much planning uh, and, and intricate, detailed work that goes into their missions and how they go about uh, conducting superheroism and, and what roles the ants will play to make it all happen. And so to not have the key members of a team, of the strike team, in any one of those uh, scenarios would just mean the mission's over before it even begins. And so, uh, and also when they're going into battle, the ants are incredibly brave, but they're certainly not indestructible. Mm -hmm. And even when you're watching the film, you see moments. I think even Anthony Anthony takes a, a hit, right? And yeah. like you know, Scott Lang kind of falls off, and another ant catches him. But you know, they're they're dropping in battle, and yeah. so yeah, that scene where they're um, I, it was in the second movie, the uh, Ant Man and the Wasp, where they're like near water and. You know, Scott Lang calls Antony and then like a seagull swoops by and eats him. Yep. And then he calls another one and the seagull swoops by and it eats, eats him. Again. Again. <laughs> it was, um, I mean, I think in that sense, it's actually good that, you know, ants are so numerous because it gives them like such, you know, a large number of individuals to potentially pull from. Right. Uh, the other thing I really like what you said about the about the heist movie is that like everybody has their roles, right? You know, and we see this with the human team. Like obviously everybody's playing their roles. Like, you know, some people are distracting, yep. some people are dressing up like security guards, et cetera, et cetera. But then even like the ants, right? Each has 
their own role. Exactly. You know, as, you know, so like the carpenter ants, you know, the flying ants are kind of like the wheelmen, right? They get you in and they get you out. And the bullet ants are kind of like the muscle, like they go in and disrupt stuff. And the uh, the crazy ants, you know, are like, you know, the electricians, they go in and they short out all the different things. So like everybody's yeah. got their purpose. Yeah. So it makes you wonder, like, do ants behave like that as a, a collective in their own societies? That's a great question. And we are going to get there. But before we get there, I think I really want to talk about the muscle, right, in terms of these bullet the ants. bullet ants. Yeah, so, you know, when we're talking about Ant-Man and these bullet ants, essentially he uses them as, like, a brute force attack squadron, essentially. Uh, And specifically, he uses, like, one specific aspect of their biology, which is their sting. Okay, who's next? Parapanera clavata. I know, bullet ants, right? Number one on the Schmidt pain index. Hey, guys. And... If you've never encountered a bullet ant, the reason why they're called bullet ants is because their sting is so powerful and so painful. So Mm. I asked Corey a little bit more about just the underpinning biology of these bullet ants and their stingers, exactly what is going on, like what is the stinger, what is it used for, et cetera. So let's hear a little bit about what she says about this. Yeah, so, All ants have some kind of a defensive uh, apparatus. Not all of them have a sting, and I'll talk about what those are like in a moment. But the bullet ant does, in fact, have a sting, and inside it has a venom gland. So it's essentially like a hypodermic needle that it can inject some kind of painful toxin into you. Now, of course, they use it as defense, but they also use some species use it to, to, um, to, you know, essentially capture prey. So, you know, it'll poison that animal or something so that they can then, you know, take it back to the nest. Um, So even though the bullet ant has this remarkably painful sting, um, not all ants that have a sting have something that's very painful to us. Because you have to remember each of those compounds was formulated by the ant, not specifically to interact with humans, but with whatever their prey items are or whoever, whoever their enemies are. So in the case of the bullet ants, the toxic venom, venom that they create is actually painful to humans, where other species might have a sting that we would barely notice. Now, for the species that don't have a sting, they have something that's called a modified sting. And so things like carpenter ants, instead of having a sting at the end of their abdomen, they have this little nozzle that's fringed with hairs. It kind of looks like the end of uh, your garden hose. And what they have there is what they do is they have the ability to spray formic acid from that nozzle, which is quite painful, um, particularly if it gets in the eyes of some kind of a predator, some kind of like mouse is trying to eat it. Um, But they can always use it um, on smaller organisms as well. It's like a little like a little acid water gun. (laughs) Exactly what it's like. Oh, my God. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is smart of Ant-Man to use the bullet ants. So the bullet ants, Paraponera clavata, actually are known to have the most painful sting of any organism on the planet. Um, and there's a guy named Justin Schmidt who went around the globe getting stung and bit by almost every arthropod that you can imagine. So spiders and scorpions and wasps and ants. And then he ranked them by how painful they were. Um, and that the bullet ant is a four, which is the most painful sting that he experienced. So it goes, what, what is the highest that, that, the, that the index goes to? I think four, because the bullet ant is the highest. Okay, that's like, to, it's like never again, I'd like chop off my pinky finger before I get stung <laughs> by one of those again sort of things. Yes, exactly. Okay. And I've actually been stung once, and I will tell you, I will do anything to never be stung again. <laughs> Okay. So obviously, given what Corey says, the bullet ant is the perfect choice for just a brute force attack squadron because their sting is nonsensical. And I can say it's nonsensical because, and this is between you and me and everybody who's listening, I have been stung six times by bullet ants in Costa Rica. Mm doing field research and 
there are a lot of things I would prefer happen to my body before I got stung by another bullet ant. It was one of the most incredibly painful and unpleasant experiences of my life. So all that's to say, I completely understand why it gets a four out of four on this Schmidt pain index. All right, so there are four different levels to this index. So there's uh, pain level one, which um, he puts like Southern fire ants uh, in, uh, in that category, uh, paper wasps and digger bees and like some other bee species. Um, then there's the level two pain index, which he puts the Western honeybee at, at that level. There's the pain level three, which is you know the second to highest. So things like the red paper wasp, the velvet ant, and I've heard that they're super painful, but I've never seen them. And then there's pain level four. The pain level four includes the bullet ant, but it also includes a couple other species, but they are not ants. They're actually both wasps. So the tarantula hawk, which I have seen in uh in the desert in mexico which is it's an absolutely gargantuan it's way bigger than you would expect or want any wasp to be um and basically it spends its time um searching for tarantulas it feeds on tarantulas and it stings them and then the females will actually lay their eggs um with the paralyzed tarantula and then those eggs hatch and the larvae eat the tarantula and then, like, and then they leave when they're adults. So tarantula hawks are terrifying. Uh, and then there's uh, what's called the warrior wasp, which I had never even heard of before. But Schmidt, the person who designed the Schmidt pain index, describes their sting as, quote unquote, torture. You are chained in the flow of an active volcano. Why did I start this list? And apparently that pain lasts up to two hours. Unreal. And so this dude, methodology-wise, just went out there and got stung, bit, yep. whatever it is. And described the pain. Science. Let me tell you, I, I love science. I love science more than most. But I do not ever want to experience what this dude experienced. Well, at least he has a pain index named after him. <laughs> Give credit where credit's due. Okay. Now we've gone through the muscle. Uh, and one of the, I think one of the most fascinating uses of ants that we see in the Ant-Man movies is actually what he does with fire ants. Now, I was raised in the South. Fire ants are a very invasive species in the South. And I can tell you also from firsthand experience that Fire ants have a very painful sting in and of themselves, but apparently they're, they only rate a one on the Schmidt index, which is fine. They certainly don't hurt as much as a bullet ant, but they are quite unpleasant. Uh, but Ant-Man doesn't use them for their sting. He uses them essentially as architects. So he uses them to like build rafts and they build bridges and all of these different sorts of things. Like how, tell me a little bit more about what you see with this interaction in the comic books. Yeah, so one of the most iconic instances we see in the first Ant-Man film was actually when Scott Lang assembles the help of the fire ants to build a raft to get him through the piping into the facility where they were housing the yellow jacket suit. And so, you know, it's, it's really phenomenal how these ants work together and I don't know if you'd call it a collective hive mind or a sense of social responsibility and, and, and just innate knowing of how to play a role to serve for the bigger purpose of the goal at, at hand. Because, you know, I, I think about this even in real life. Like, one, do ants, can ants even do this? Mm. I, I feel like there's instances where you see ants coming together as a collective to accomplish a task that's bigger than the individual but how do they know what they're doing as a collective how are they communicating how do they understand and even survive in a situation like creating a raft where they have the potential to drown like what's what's the deal behind that 
That's um, a great question. Is man. it? I can explain it with the comic books, right? Because <laughs> Scott has his helmet on, and uh-huh. it's just like, yo, you're on the bottom. Yeah. You're on the like. Give me, yeah. Just build just, that real quick. Yep, yeah, and then just you know, build me a little quick ladder so I can hop up into this little pipe at the end of it and jump off, and and I'm good. But where does this break down in the real world? Like, how does yeah. that all come together? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so obviously, you know, one of the things with ants is that I mean, there's just so many of them, right? I yeah. mean, and you have to coordinate. A lot of information across a lot of individuals to accomplish uh, accomplish different tasks. So I asked Corey a little bit about this idea of bridge building and raft building with fire ants. So let's hear what she has to say about this. Um, you social organisms have overlapping generations, meaning that you know it's not just a single sort of cohort that's born at once, like that dies all at the same time, right? You have individuals of varying ages throughout the entire colony. Um, they're, of course, um, interacting with one another. And, you know, let's see, uh, the older ones are feeding uh, other individuals in the nest. Um, and this idea essentially is part of what does lead to this um, sort of sophistication within the colony. And that's because almost all those individuals you see out doing the jobs within the nest actually can't reproduce. So you have these non reproductive individuals that cooperate for caring for the young of their mother, right? So their own sisters and will help do things like build up the colony, defend the colony, gather food for the colony. And so this sort of sophistication of behaviors is is something that people have been studying for a long time because each individual ant is not very intelligent, but they can carry off very sophisticated behaviors um, through cooperation. And so trying to understand how that happens um, no one still has solved it entirely. Of course, you know, we've made headway in, in, in that field, but it is something that people would love to understand. I mean, especially for people who do things like robotics, if you could have a situation where no single robot has to be programmed with every possible scenario, but you could have interacting robots that could actually cooperate to solve complex problems, that would actually be very beneficial. We see that these animals, they're coming together and you know, doing these pretty incredible things, right, in terms of like, you know, being able to group together and build bridges and rafts and this sort of stuff. Do ants actually do this in real life? Absolutely. That's what's amazing about some of it is that, I mean, although, of course, not all of it's 100% accurate to the biology of ants, but there's a lot that they actually really pulled from what ants can do. So fire ants are, in fact, known to sort of build these floating rafts where all the individuals take turns being on the bottom of the raft and sort of rotating towards the top so that no individual actually drowns as the colony sort of, you know, floats around. And some of the reason they're thought to be able to do that is that the um, the origin of the fire ants is in a part of South America um, where we it seasonally floods. And so this is thought to be sort of a, a, a mechanism for them to survive during these flooded periods. And there's actually, you can see videos of it online. It's quite remarkable. So now I want to get into this, the last ant that we see a lot of in the Ant-Man movies, which is what they call the crazy ant. And this ant, I think of, of all the things that we see, like this is, I think, a really wild and very specific use of an ant. Give us a little bit of a rundown about what we see with the crazy ants. So the crazy ants are our electrical specialists. They come in and completely dismantle any sort of electrical apparatus that may need to be shut down in order for a mission to be accomplished. And, you know, every good heist film has its uh, technician that is especially capable of disrupting the security systems of the target at hand and in this case Scott Lang's specialists are these quote-unquote crazy ants and so when it comes to these crazy ants I would say that arguably and we've talked about some pretty incredible stuff so far Mm -hmm. this feels like the biggest stretch for me yeah yeah so I think when they're when they're talking about the crazy ants it seems that the way they lay it out is that the crazy ants have like some way of disrupting electrical fields or something like that. And that sounds to me kind of wild. 
Paratrachina longicornis, commonly known as crazy ants. They're lightning fast and can conduct electricity, which makes them useful to fry out enemy electronics. So I had to check in with Corey and see exactly what is the deal with these crazy ants. So let's, let's hear what she has to say. So it is in fact <laughs> true. These crazy ants um, actually do like to live in tight, warm spaces. And most of our electronics and, you know, outlets and walls are pretty much fit that description. But because they'll be in such huge abundance, they'll inadvertently end up shorting out different kinds of electronic um, devices and even in some cases have led to power outages because the intensifications get so high. No one knows for certain that it's, if it's something beyond just the heat and the tight compartments that attracts them. Some people have speculated that there is some amount of like buzz of the electricity, but I don't think that that's actually been tested. But hmm. they do actually cause damage by shorting things out. It's really a, re a remarkable thing. And I mean, the thing you have to keep in mind is that the reason that they're pests is that they're actually not native to the southern U.S. And so in that sense, it's that their colonies have essentially gotten to these huge abundances um, without being checked or controlled. And so in their native habitats, I'm not so certain that you'd ever find them in that kind of abundance where they would cause as much problems. Oh, so it's because they're an invasive species. Yeah. Okay. And fire ants are also an invasive species. That's right. Absolutely. So uh, that's an interesting thing that Ant-Man's decided to harness the uh, both native and uh, introduced uh, you know, pest species in his battles for dominance. <laughs> yeah. So maybe he's not the best conservationist is what, is what you're saying. <laughs> that's right. So it turns out that what we see with the crazy ants this is not exactly how things play out in real life, but the end result more or less is the same right? in the sense that, you know, these, this particular set of species, these crazy ants, they do have a tendency to destroy electrical systems, but typically just because they're warm and they like to nest in warm places because they are an invasive species that comes from a warmer area, right? Electricity produces heat. It all makes sense. Um, but when we're talking about like the sheer amount of destruction, we're talking about a lot. It's estimated that these crazy ants, they cause more than about $150 million of electrical damage every single year, That's which is sick. absurd. It's like one ant species that's costing over $150 million worth of damage every single year. Wow. And I, I got to say, I'm, I'm impressed with the comic book films in this regard, because even in the instance here where it's been stretched a little bit, they're still drawing upon inspiration of something very similar that's happening in the real world. So hats off to Marvel in this case, because yeah. I, I think they've done a lot to, at least for me, even make me curious about ants from watching their film and, and happy to find out that there's some truth to the real world biology and, and, and implications of how they go about their business and in their lives and their ecosystems. And, and to also find out some things that seem even in some ways less believable than what you find in the comic books. I think they're just a fascinating species across the board. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, yeah, they, so they did take some liberties, right? Granted, right. But, you know, I, I think that it does, like you said, right, it does spark the curiosity, right? And, you know, given that these things have been, you know, you've had ants crawling around your kitchen for Lord knows how long, you just now getting curious about them, you know, I mean, I think that says a lot. I think it also means it's time for me to find a helmet and make some friends. Yeah, or a cleaner. I'm the comic book guy. I think we can be friends. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Fair enough. So a lot of what we've been talking about, um, you know, with these, with all these different species, a lot of it boils down to communication, right? It boils down to communication between the ants and it boils down to communication between Ant-Man and, you know, his ant army, which brings up this very basic fundamental question. How do ants communicate? So when we see Scott Lang or when we saw Hank Pym wear the helmet, it seems like 
they're communicating by electricity somehow, or like radio waves maybe? So, in the film they have this EMP communicator that they call the ant training device. And it's basically this contraption that Hank Pym created to communicate with the ants. So from a technical perspective, it uses electromagnetic waves to stimulate the olfactory nerve center of the ants, mimic their pheromones, and essentially allows either Hank or Scott Lang to control them and communicate with them. Hmm. So this is, so this is interesting, right? Because I feel like there's a lot of biology in that explanation. And a lot that I don't know. <laughs> well... Good thing that we have Corey to lean back on. So let's hear what she has to say about the biology of ant communication. (laughs) That's an interesting question. So we believe that almost all ants communicate mostly through pheromones. But of course, there's also sort of tactile touch. So pheromones are essentially just, it's like chemical communication. So if you've ever noticed an ant has their antenna and their antenna are almost always pointing forward um, and that's so they can sense the environment in front of them. Um, And they have lots of little sensory um, parts on their antenna that allow them to absorb chemicals. So ants can communicate through secreting different kinds of of, um, chemical signals. They have things like alarm pheromones. um, They have things like appeasement pheromones. So they have ways to communicate among each other. It's also the primary sense of how they smell the environment for when they're foraging for things like food. So although some ants do communicate through, it's mostly through pheromones, chemical communication. Uh, so, so in reality, if Ant-Man were going to be a real thing, like that helmet wouldn't be sending out electrical signals, but would actually be like squirting out some kind of pheromones in order to communicate with ants. <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> that somehow that that seems a little bit nastier i'm not sure why that seems nastier to me but i just don't know if i'd want to be wearing a helmet that was like squirting out pheromones <laughs> yeah exactly especially if the sense were and all that pleasing <laughs> yeah so obviously like what we hear from Corey is that like this whole idea of you know, like manipulating this sort of olfaction centers that we hear, you know, as the explanation in the comics, I mean, that would generally have to be spot on in the sense that you're going to have to manipulate or stimulate those olfactory receptors um, in order to either by either producing pheromones or by mimicking the production of pheromones somehow electrically by way of comic book magic. I feel like in order to do that, they would have to like, I mean, you'd probably have to manipulate the ants themselves somehow as well right not just make this device that somehow stimulates but also potentially engineer ants biologically so that they can receive specific commands from that machine that device whatever that happens to be in that case right the whole like this idea of like engineering ants we've actually seen a couple of examples recently where scientists have gone in and actually used CRISPR technology, gene editing, to um, to manipulate one gene known as ORCO that actually is responsible for pheromone-based behavior and also the development of those olfactory regions of the brain. So back in 2017, actually two different labs, one at Rockefeller University and the other at uh, NYU, both genetically engineered two different ant species um, with altered versions of this orco gene. And both of these studies found that by knocking out that orco gene, right, causing it to, to, uh, to lose its function, that these animals, they lost their ability to smell and communicate by way of pheromones, but also the region of their brain that was responsible for uh, detecting these olfactory signals was also underdeveloped. Right, so you could potentially imagine like, you know, maybe Hank Pym has done something to these ants that has actually like cranked up the expression of that gene as opposed to knock it out, which would potentially make them more sensitive or, or sensitive in such a way that he could create this machine, you know, to 
like very specifically target whatever those regions of the brain are. Right? So in either case, right, regardless of what's happening under hood under the hood with all this comic book magic, it's very clear that Hank Pym has to be good in order to do what he does and for the success of Ant-Man as a hero, he both has to be a brilliant biologist and a brilliant physicist and engineer, right? And those two different parts, both of those things work together to create um, what we see play out on the comic book pages and in the movies. Yeah, and I think you make a great point about the level of brilliance that Hank Pym demonstrates both as a biologist and a physicist. And we've played so much in the biological world uh, and learned a ton, but we've barely dipped our toes into the physics side of it. And it's when you're true. talking about Ant-Man, some of his greatest adventures actually take place in these stories that happen in the quantum realm. Mm -hmm. And you're talking about sizes that are so small that bring up so many different uh, and interesting conundrums, uh, just even from a, a sheer physicality of how do you breathe when you are smaller than the size of an atom or how can you even see when you're tinier than a photon and, and so many other kind of just mind-bendy, twisty, sciencey like just conundrums yeah. that I, I think that uh, get introduced and, and you know when you talk about some of my favorite stuff in science. I, I love like the extremely big stuff when you're talking about the universe and galaxies and all these things, black holes, and then the subatomic, I think is just equally as fascinating and off the walls bizarre mm. once you shrink down to a different, like a certain size. And yeah. even in the films, with like within the Marvel Cinematic Universe, there's a, quite a few adventures that occur at the subatomic level, uh, particularly when they try and go and rescue Hank Pym's wife. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, this idea, obviously, you know, the physics side of this thing, you know, I mean, that's that's a whole series in and of itself, potentially. For sure. But it also brings up a lot of stuff that you were talking about, like brings up for me as a biologist, like these aspects of size and scaling when body size shrinks. I mean, a lot of different things change. Right. When you look at the shapes of small animals and large animals, right? It's not just a size difference, but they're changing in shape. A lot of aspects of their physiology changes. Mm. Um, like how do you speak? How do you hear? How do you see? How do you breathe? All of these things change, right? Because of this interaction of physics, chemistry, and biology, right? All of those things have to be remodeled in different ways as you change size. So thinking about you know, Hank Pym or Scott Lang, you know, getting to be like really not even subatomic, but even, you know, the size of an ant mm. versus giant man, right? You know, 50 feet tall or whatever, right? I mean, there's a lot of biology there um, that can be explored. But unfortunately, I think we're gonna have to save that for a different episode. Yeah. And what an episode it'll be. I think that'll be a good one. Yeah, man. Um, but for this episode, it's always good having you in the lab, my man. Likewise. Pleasure. It's good to be back. Yeah, for sure. So let's jump in uh, again next time. We will indeed. All right, man. I'll see you soon. All right. Take care. Peace. Thanks so much for joining us for this episode of the Biology of Superheroes podcast. Make sure you subscribe. You can rate us, leave a message on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at SuperBioPodcast. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. So hit us up. Let us know what you think. And with that, I'll say thanks again and stay curious.